This podcast was recorded on 27th of March 2019. We've uploaded some accompanying notes which you can find in the comments section on your podcast provider. Hello and welcome to our Brave New Economic World File. In this podcast, finance and economics experts Jerry Brady of Boom and Paul Gambles of MBMG Group talk about the strong dollar and the inverted yield curve, China's Belt and Road Initiative, the future of blockchain and the elections in Thailand, where Paul is based. That's it for the intro. Here we go. One thing before we start, don't forget to subscribe with your podcast provider so you get our next podcast automatically on your device. Jerry, great to uh, great to talk again. Obviously, since um, last time we uh, we had a chat, which is not that long ago, an awful lot of things have seemingly happened in the world, and even more things have happened in terms of I think people's perceptions changing. And uh, maybe one of the biggest shifts is that I guess a lot of policymaker perceptions have, have now become you know much more aligned with the kind of things that, that we were saying for a majority of last year. I think in one of your recent editorials, you said that the, the sort of shift in tone from uh, Fed Chairman Powell was something that would, would come as absolutely no surprise at all to, uh, to regular boom readers. And uh, I think that's true. I think if there's any surprise here to me, it's how long people have taken to, to catch up with what really seems to be going on in the world. Yeah, I agree, Paul. I think a lot of people uh, just believe uh, the narrative that uh, is officially put in front of them. And they don't look. They don't look too much deeper than that. The, the you would hope the chairman of the uh, the Federal Reserve might look a bit deeper than that sometimes. Oh, yes, that's true. We would hope, but of course they don't. <laughs> um, right. They don't. Um, but uh, their reversal of their policy settings was probably the most easily predicted uh, thing for no, a long time. Although, to be honest, I thought you wrote an excellent editorial on that this week. I think wasn't it? And I. I uh, there was only one part of that that I would have taken issue with it all, and that, and that is that you, you said that Powell and the FOMC had uh, had reversed and gone into pretty much sort of full full blown accommodatory stance, you know, having indicated they were going to carry on balance sheet tightening, quantitative tightening ad infinitum, and they were going to do four rate hikes this year. And, and the only bit I, I query is. I think they've said that they're going to go into an accommodatory stance. I'm not sure yet that they've, they've actually taken any action. I mean, at best, I think what they've said is that they're going to move very slowly, very gradually towards neutral. And because that's obviously less negative than continued tightening would be, then the markets have got you know incredibly excited. And I, I would argue too excited about that. I still don't think there's any recognition yet that the Fed are prepared to do anything that, you know, you would class as being stimulatory actions. A lot of nice words. And they say there's a commitment to stop tightening. But I think that that's about as far as we've got, isn't it? I agree, Paul. And I don't think they'll do much more, to be honest. I think they'll just stop here for quite a long time and, and not actually do anything further. I'm a very binary thinker. I can uh, I think I can um, always consider two opposite realities at the same time. And one of the ways of thinking like that is that if things are not going up then they're going down and if things are not going down then they're going up and it sounds a funny thing to say but uh, you can apply this to interest rates if they put the interest rates on hold when they've been raising them for 12 months then that is in effect a drop because it's not no longer going up if you know what i mean so uh, so it has a very powerful impact 
I take that point, but I think, you know, if you, if you follow that through logically, my concern would be that what that does is it slows the rate of deterioration. It doesn't actually improve economic performance at all. And then, you know, I think you, you have to be very careful, as with all, all these things, every single situation is different. It's got, it's got um, aspects you can compare with, with previous situations, with precedents, but every single situation is different. I think that... You know, in this environment, there's a real risk that coming out with a you know a positive spin and moving to a neutral stance when you know there was a spin that was seen as being pro-timing and there was policy that was pro-timing. I, I just I just worry that this time that might not actually be enough. And um, one of the the reasons, one of the concerns is is that if you look at China for the last eighteen months or so. China has actually been not just turning off the, the negative taps, but it's actually been full on uh, adopting a stimulatory policy and, and getting you know, very little, so far, very little uh, payback, very little response from the amount of stimulus that, uh, that China's poured into, into its economy. And China is able to be a lot more focused, a lot more controlling than you know, most central banks are. So I, I just worry that if China has gone into a full-on, you know, double-bore, um, all-barrel stimulus mode, and it's not yet seeing any payback from that 18 months later, I, I'm not sure that that differential that you're talking about, that positive differential by moving from negative to neutral, is, is, is actually going to be enough this time. Uh, I, we'll, we'll soon find out. I mean, as the year progresses, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Federal Reserve lowers their interest rates. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. So they'll, they can easily change their mind and, and, and stimulate the uh, economy with lower interest rates. Uh, and I, I do note your comments about what China has done. They've uh, initiated enormous uh, stimulatory measures in the last 12 months, and particularly in January of this year, where they uh, increased massive amounts of uh, liquidity increase in their banking sector. So we should we should see something from that this year in, in China. And if we don't, then we've certainly got a problem in China. But I, it's too early to tell, I think. So it's only been two months since they... No, yeah. no I'm, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly not making a, uh, you know... Uh, doomsday prediction here. Uh, it, no, it's it's no. more of a concern that I think you know the. Um, I suppose looking at it with my you know capital markets hat on. Um, yeah. My, my my biggest concern is that initially the markets response seems to be that they they sort of you know bought this hook line and sinker that this this is absolutely going to work and uh, I think you know at the very least there's got to be big question marks about that particularly based on you know how long it's taking to to feed through in, in in China and you know I think one of the big problems now is we've got a sort of interconnected uh globally interconnected rock in a hard place you know the 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 biggest difficulty I think for China is that if it had put in this amount of stimulus at the same time as we'd been seeing dollar liquidity flooding the markets and a weaker US dollar, if all that had happened, then I think we probably would have had a, a more positive outcome. Obviously, no, no counterfactual for us to know, but it seems it certainly seems to me that the biggest barrier to emerging market and Chinese stimulus actually having the effect that it's intended seems to be the uh, the strong dollar and the um, and, and the you know disappointing dollar liquidity that's out there oh, I agree I agree definitely on the strong dollar is is a huge problem for the global economy and it's a problem for the US economy I think it's a, a problem mm. for everyone and um, the sooner they wake up and and take active steps to lower their dollar then um, uh, you know the better really they've got to wake up to themselves and do that perhaps the other thing you haven't mentioned uh, in this uh, summary of central bank actions is the yield 
curve inversion or so-called inversion in the United States. The media have gone ballistic over this and panicking all over the place. But uh, I really think it's overblown, um, the whole idea. Number one, the curve is not inverted when you look at the whole 30-year curve. Uh, number two, this curve inversion is very, very different to uh, previous curve inversions in America. When, when they invert the curve and, and the interest rates are high, um, and you've got a, a out-of-control economy with CPI inflation threatening very rapidly, then if you invert the curve there, uh, you're slamming on the brakes from the economy. We're not in that situation at all in, in the United States economy. In fact, almost the opposite. They, they are desperately trying to stimulate the economy and, and see it see it show signs of life, or maybe stimulate's the wrong term, but at least they're, they're looking for signs of life. So when you invert the curve, on a flat and a very, very low interest rate curve, you're not having anywhere near the impact uh, as previous curve inversions have been with high interest rates. So it's a very, very different situation. Yeah, no, I, just... I think that's right. I mean, you know, as, we, as we've talked about before, a couple of our um, extremely smart acquaintances and friends made sort of different points on this recently. Steve Keen was, in my view, quite rightly sort of criticising the, um, the Fed for an interest rate policy over the last year or 18 months that's really made no sense at all. And um, that's true. Richard Vernon made the point that, well, you know, historically, if you look, there's a very strong correlation and there can be causative reasons between interest rates increasing and growth accelerating. But as I've said to you before, I think the difference this time is that we haven't got economic growth in the US economy that is causing interest rates to increase. If you look no. At real interest rates, if you look at, say, the 10-year, which is the biggest determinant in, in uh, cost of money for, for businesses and other borrowers, if you look at the 10-year, that's pretty much remained completely unmoved as, as a trend during the time that the Fed have been raising short-term rates. And, and what, what that screams to me is that, you know, this, this whole policy process from the Federal Reserve over the last 18 months or so has been, it's, it's as if it's come from Mars. It's, it's totally exogenous. It's not something, you know, the economy is not raising interest rates because it's not having to because it's not seeing accelerating growth. The Fed, on the other hand, which controls, to the extent it controls anything, controls the short end, the Fed is actually out there, you know, pushing up the short end like crazy. And, and the economy is basically largely just ignoring the Fed and saying, no, we don't have that growth. We don't have the problem you're trying to fight. But ultimately, all of those moves at the short end you know, they do feed through. They, they, they do have an impact, yeah. uh, negative yeah. impact. They're desperate to return to their so-called normal. And they think the normal is high interest rates and CPI inflation. But we're not in the old normal. We're in the new normal. Exactly. The new normal, normal world is one of low growth, low inflation and low interest rates. That's the new normal. But they, you know, they keep thinking they can go back in history to the prior 2008 world. And it, we just can't. The world has changed. Well, they've made a lot to, to an extent, you know, they, they, they were complicit. I'm not sure how much choice they oh, had, yeah. but they were complicit in that change. They went along with it by resetting interest rates. Yeah, oh, they did. They did. Oh, definitely. But now, but now they're uh, desperately trying to reverse all of that. Yeah. They're very limited in what they can do. Uh, yeah. You know, what they've done in the last 12 months has been, um, I think, putting interest rates up so many times has been foolish um when when the when they've been expanding the u.s deficit has basically doubled in the last 12 months if you look at the real numbers not the official numbers uh, the official numbers are, are quite you know they're quite incorrect as far as i'm concerned and the real numbers for deficit expansion in america 
are showing a deficit of 1.4 trillion. That's nearly double what it was a year ago. Trump does like having, you know, the biggest and largest and greatest, you know. That's right. He's got the biggest deficit now. Absolutely. Well done. Yeah. Hats hats off to Naga. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, putting up interest rates while the uh, deficit is expanding ra- as rapidly as that, just, you know, it just it just sort of tells you they don't know what they're doing, they're not very well advised and they're not thinking carefully. Uh, but they've come to their sem- senses, they've stopped doing it, they've, they've cancelled their uh, QT program in September. I wouldn't be surprised if they lower interest rates throughout the year. I always quote you that Churchill saying that the Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all other avenues and um, it, it applies here, doesn't it? No, it I think the difficulty is they've dug a very deep hole for themselves, which they're now slowly trying to talk their way out of. If you have any sympathy at all for central banks, and I don't, but if you did, then I suppose if you look at the situation that the ECB dug themselves into, which was, you know, it was it was farcical. Um, yep. Yeah, all the ECB accommodations that again you uh, laid out extremely well in um, editorial. Uh, I think on the 10th of March, you, you laid them out factually. And as we said, it, it, it sounds it sounds almost like you're writing satire when all you do is go and report, you know, verbatim the, the policy of the, of the ECB. But um, that's right. But yeah, no, if you look at uh, you look at ECB, then, you know, for basically 10 years, as you charted in your editorial, they uh, did everything they could to accommodate, you know, at times buying up more of the corporate bond market than was actually being issued at the time and um they pursued that under different guises and you know as you as you uh, laid out almost different disguises for uh, for about 10 years and then you know right at the end of 2018 draghi uh, with a flurry says right that's it it's ending we're not doing the um, the asset buying programs anymore and a month later has to go around eating the most enormous servings of humble pie and, and you know <laughs> Uh, I mean, only, only Draghi could, you know, arrive at a press conference and with full bravura sort of say, right, we're doing it again. Uh, but even, um, you know, even some of his biggest fans and advocates like um, Balls at PIMCO, who was a big buyer, everybody, everybody who had any faith in Draghi seems to have lost that. And so I think, yeah. you know, the, the, the Fed are desperate to avoid appearing as uh, quite such a, a pantomime act as the ECB. But the danger with that is, and, and this is a you know, long-winded question I was going to ask you, if the Fed are so tentatively trying to climb out of the hole they dug themselves into, yeah. when can they realistically have messaged and you know massaged the press and everything that they need to do and the markets to then be able to effectively go about introducing stimulus. You know, the danger is you do what Draghi did and everybody just discounts it as a complete panic and, and you know, hysterical central bank and things must be really bad if, if one month they're saying they're stopping and the next month they say they're starting again. So the Fed are trying to avoid that. But the danger with uh, with gradualism is that, in my view, the, the Fed are, you know, in real danger of leaving things too late. I, I don't see that they can well, possibly bring in the accommodation in the first half of this year. I think central banks have a lot of power in some situations and almost no power in other situations. So in a situation where you've got a very strong private economy with credit expansion, CPI inflation, everything humming, the stock market roaring into a great 
uh, a bull market, then the central bank has a lot of power in those situations. They can have a, make make a big difference with interest rate uh, raises. But when you've got the opposite, which is what we've got now, where you've got um, low CPI inflation, uh, very low growth, and uh, you know government spending like mad to try and try and get things to happen, it's a very different situation. And I think in these situations, the central bank has very little power. So. I don't think it matters much what they do uh, in, in these situations. They they have they have impact by all means, but not as much impact as they they had in those previous boom periods. So uh, I think that's a factor. And also, I they're, think they're, they're better at um, they're better at demolition than they are at construction. Yeah? Correct, correct. <laughs> that's right. They're better on the brake than they are on the accelerator. You know, they uh, yeah, they're better at destroying things rather than constructing things. And the other thing is the um, government expenditure programs. Um, they finally worked out they've got to spend a lot more, and they're doing that, and they're funding it through bond issuance and. The bond issuance uh, is going fine in the United States. There's no shortage of buyers there. And so they can keep issuing bonds and spending till the cows come home. And, and they will do that. I think that they will, that we haven't even begun to see yet how much deficit spending can happen in the US over the next four or five years. I think it's going to be enormous. Um, so, and that won't create inflation uh, because uh, bond issuance tends not to create inflation. So I, think, inflation I think it'll help. This, Sorry. Is very de- this is a very deflationary backdrop yes. anyway. Yes, we're in a disinflationary or deflationary backdrop. So issuing tons of bonds and spending like mad isn't going to cause CPI inflation. It, it won't cause a lot of growth, but it'll probably just hold it above positive, you know, 2% or something. Um, and that's the world we're going to live in for a long, long time. I don't think that um, central banks have got a lot of power in these situations. And uh, so I, I always look for other things now. And the deficit spending is one of them. And uh, then if you look at the European uh, central bank situation, uh, similar, it's a very similar situation. The central bank has very little stimulatory capacity here. They're just really holding the, um, the GDP of Europe at a, a steady state uh, just above zero. So we've got to look at other things. Now, I think China is the other thing coming. And I think their stimulation package in January was enormous. Mm-hmm. And it will have impact. And I think the Belt and Road uh, Initiative is also going to have an enormous global impact. And that was seen in the last week where Italy signed up to the Belt and Road Project. Uh, that That's a very, very, uh, I think, significant event in global economic uh, outlook. And um, the first, in the very first instance, the French uh, Macron and, uh, and the Germans Merkel, uh, both the uh, you know, came out and attacked the, the the Italians for doing this, and they shouldn't be. They should they should be more reticent about signing up to the Belt and Road Chinese uh, program. Starving you to death. How can you possibly go and take food from someone else? That's exactly right. And then 24 hours later, Xi Jinping turns up to meet Macron and says, we want to buy $300 billion of aircraft. And the photograph I saw this morning is with Macron and Merkel in a great joyful smile as they shake hands with Xi Jinping. So they changed their tune in 24 hours. Um, I'm not sure they changed their tune. I mean, the tune has always been that the the, um, construction of the Eurozone is for benefiting certain people more than others. And uh, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Italy was trying to deal the cards the wrong way as far as the Eurozone is concerned. Um, Sure. But my point is, it's a, you know, the Chinese have just in one step, like two steps, really. One day they sign up Italy, the next day they, they buy $300 billion of aircraft off Airbus. And 
everything changes. So I think China has a tremendous impact uh, on the global economy, much more now than people realise. And um, the Belt and Road project, which expands across, you know, possibly up to 100 nations, is the big news event for the next 10 years and the, the big economic event too. So I think this last week has been fascinating and I wrote my last editorial this week and I called it Italy Turns to China. I think it's just such a, it can't be underestimated how big an event this is. So yeah. I'm I'm quite hopeful that the BRI will slowly but surely rescue a lot of economies uh, and, and, and that slowly but surely the, the slow economic growth will stabilise. I don't think it's going to get really, really strong, but I think it'll stabilise at low rates uh, rather than rather than fall into recession, I'm I'm not a fan of the global recession ar- argument. So I I think China's the big news. I agree with that. I I'd, I'd be a bit more cautious than yourself. I think China is being incredibly strategic here. We we've not been able to analyze all the details because nobody can. But we we've seen some of the stories surrounding some of the BRI initiative offers to uh, countries in Asia. And frankly, they you know they haven't been that attractive. The, it, it's almost um, it's almost like kind of payday loans or uh, you know predatory lenders that really only likely to be taken up by people that are have no other alternative and are in desperate need, or countries that have no other alternative and are in desperate need. But I think you know yep, yep. what the uh, what the Italy breakthrough maybe signals is that one maybe because of EU and ECB. Italy maybe is a lot more desperate than we realise, but maybe also China is prepared to be strategic. I imagine Italy obviously would have got a much better deal than was being offered to places like Cambodia or Laos. So, oh, definitely, uh, definitely. Yeah, You're right there. Yeah, China <laughs> will go around using this. It's it's not purely financial. It's not purely economic. Um, you know, in no. a world where... American influence is um, suddenly a very different American influence to what it was even just two, three years ago, then I think, you know, we'll we'll find that China is very attuned to how it can get the, I was going to say best bang for its buck, but basically best bang for its renminbi in terms of where it goes and, and, and deploys that spending. Well, that's right. We, we've talked about this issue, yeah, I think, in the last uh, podcast where I brought to your attention the fact that China is caught between two things. It's got to get its currency out into the world, but it can't be seen to be doing doing that. Exactly. So it's a, a difficult act to pull off. And sometimes they over overplay their hand and try and give uh, people loans that are perhaps a little unwise for the borrower. But they're learning that game, I think. They, they're slowly learning the game that, that it's not easy to get your currency out into the world and you've got to you've got to be skillful in doing that and it's not a blunt instrument you've got to be careful and skillful that they do have to get their currency out into the world to balance to slowly balance off the amount of us dollars in circulation uh, if they want to lessen the the impact of the us dollar so i think their policy is right but it you know it's a it's a tough act to pull off when you're trying to get a lot lot of currency off out of your borders and into other nations hands it just uh, it's just not an easy thing to do Um, it's not but it it is being made easier by the likes of ecb and the fed yes uh, definitely. With their yeah. own missteps, creating opportunities for China. Right oh, definitely. Definitely. I think China can see that all of their hopes and dreams are coming true. The BRI is looking successful already. The long-term direction is good. It's uh, It makes sense. 
But then you've got to do it and you've got to pull it off. And, and it's not easy to get your currency out into the world. That's the hard part. And it just takes a long time. You know, people ask me all the time. They ask me, so many people ask me about the demise of the US dollar. And I, my answer is always the same. And I say it's going to be 50 to 100 years before any currency can challenge the US dollar as a settlement currency for international trade. It just takes too long to get the alternative currency out there to, to balance off. So any any talk of a sudden shift in, you know, dollar dominance, I think is is fairly foolish. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. It's too hard to happen. But the Americans actually, I think, have to welcome a balance to their dollar dominance because the dollar dominance is a double-edged sword for them So because it's causing problems for their economy. Then They're not particularly exploiting it well. I don't think they're necessarily making the most of the upside. But I think... No. Yeah, not, Look, I, no. I, I agree. I don't think you know we're going to wake up one day and suddenly find that the whole, you know, financial system has has changed and, and global currency has swapped overnight. That just doesn't happen. No. Not, even in a process of gradual change, you still tend to need a momentous event. You know, it was um, it yeah. was really uh, World War One that started it and World War Two that finished it that cemented Correct. the uh, you know the U.S. Uh, dollar hegemony. But um, I think the one thing that, um, while I don't disagree with the description of a process, you know, you're a bit braver than me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and put a time scale just because I think, I think there are things that could accelerate the process this time. You know, again, we've talked a lot in the past about different kind of um, payment ecosystems that are potentially going to emerge at the world in, in the world in the future. We, we're, we're, I think, both still sceptical about where crypto is currently at where technologies like blockchain are currently at but but i i also and i don't i hope i'm not misquoting you but i think both of us are also aware that could change in the future and we could get um some form of payment ecosystem whether it looks anything like crypto as we understand it today whether it uses a technology such as blockchain as we understand it today is another matter but i think you know what what the whole crypto blockchain shenanigans has done so far is maybe make people like me aware that there could very much be a, a payment shift coming. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that actually coming out of China. I, I think that in, in the future, retail and banking and entertainment and communications might all look different to how they look today. And they've changed a lot even in the last 10 years. But I think that in the States, you know, we've already seen that it's very difficult for Facebook or Google or even Amazon to go and acquire too much dominance across too many different silos. Whereas you know, Tencent or Alibaba or some Chinese company that hasn't even been formed yet or we don't know about yet may well prove more able, especially in a, in a different technological financial ecosystem, to be able to go and own a lot more of all those different turfs. Well, I, I've written a lot about the crypto world lately. I, I have followed it personally since 1996 because not, that's 22 years ago. Uh, why, why 1996? Because 1996 was when uh, really uh, the blockchain became more obvious to the world. That was when the NSA in America produced a paper called eMoney or eCoin or eCash. I forget what the name of the paper was. But they produced this paper in 1996. I can vividly remember reading that paper and I can vividly remember the day I was where I was and, and uh, being uh, surprised by it. But it was from 1996 to 2008 before Bitcoin uh, became produced uh, based on the same paper, basically. And, um, and since then, we've had the so-called... Uh, 
Bitcoin blockchain type uh, phenomenon happen for the last 10, 11 years now, going on 12th year. But I think in terms of payment systems, I don't think it's going to succeed. I can't see any hope for it, to be honest, as a payment alternative. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I could advance but for that, but they're very complicated issues about what is money and what is not money and, and how, how some of the promises made can't possibly stand the test of time. But I think the crypto world is going to change the world in other ways. It's not going to change it as alternative currency systems. It's not going to change it as in terms of payment systems. It's not going to be a good store of wealth for a lot of reasons, boiling down to security issues. The so-called utility tokens are all well and good. They're, they're quite uh, interesting phenomenon, but they're not much different to a frequent flyer program. So all the promises of crypto to date haven't haven't really manifested in the real world. Um, there's a lot of people still excited about it, but uh, their excitement is slowly waning. There are some things that have manifested in the real world, though, Jerry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm crime. Well, I'm a lot more interested in Alipay than I am in Bitcoin, for instance. Yeah, I, well, you know, I always tell people that uh, who get excited about this subject, I tell them that the blockchain technology was invented in 1991. You know, it's old technology. It's not anything special. It's a. It's no different to what we call a Git, a G-I-T, a Git. Uh, a Git is a way of storing uh, software development projects so that you're so that you can track the changes in a software development program, and they're immutable. They can't be changed. So you can watch all these stages of software development, and you can uh, store them in a in a in a data store, basically. So that's called a Git, a G-I-T. And a blockchain is really not much different. It's the same thing. It's just an immutable store of data and um, and and transactions that can't be altered. And that's no different to a Git. Now, any software developer listening to this podcast will know what a Git is. And once you know that a Git is no different to a blockchain, and a blockchain is no different to a Git, then the the miracle of the blockchain disappears. There is no miracle. Um, and then you've got to say, well, what else is this phenomenon representing? And it's a, it's a very, um, it's certainly not, I think, going to find its resolution in a, a new payment system. It's not going to find its resolution in a new currency system. It's not going to find its resolution in new stores of wealth. And it's not going to find its resolution in so-called utility tokens. So, so it's it's promise. A lot of its promises have failed already, but I do think there's a future. Um, coming in the crypto world which is not yet here but it's coming and it will it will change the world but um it's not obvious to most people yet no i agree i agree and and as a and yes you're right and by the way just sorry just to add one more comment but you're right it the that manifestation may erupt out of a place like china or tonga or outer mongolia or india or you know who knows some bright spark somewhere it could could see something that nobody else sees and change the world. And and uh, so as to where it comes from, I don't know. And um, But I do think there's something uh, about this world which is going to change the, the, our current world, but it's just not yet plainly obvious. I mean, I have a good idea, but I'm not, I'm not prepared to discuss that on a podcast. It's an interesting phenomenon, and I watch it very, very closely. And um, uh, I don't know if you read my last editorial on the disruptions to the crypto world. I noted quite a few disruptions in that editorial. I'll just run through the five disruptions I discussed because they're very interesting. The first disruption was the Chicago Board of Exchange has announced it's not going to offer futures markets on Bitcoin anymore. 
This is not a big deal, but it just sort of uh, is interesting to note. It's another nail in the coffin, isn't it? Well, they just they said there's no volume, uh, so they're not making any money out of it, so they're just going to close it down. The the futures market still exists for Bitcoin, though, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME, so that will continue. I don't think the CME will give up so easily on this. I think they'll persist with it for a long, long time before they give up. But the Chicago Board of Exchange stopping its futures market on Bitcoin is significant and it's worth noting. The second event I noted uh, in that editorial was the Swiss uh, Six Exchange, the stock exchange in Switzerland, which is taking a leading role in uh, issuing exchange-traded products in various um, so-called cryptocurrencies. So the, the Swiss have really, I think, taken the lead now in this world where you can buy and sell these so-called cryptocurrencies on the Swiss exchange now with, ev- with no need to have an e-wallet or take any security risk. You can just uh, buy these through the stock exchange and sell them through the stock exchange. So that, that's a pretty interesting development in Switzerland. It, it uh, is, but again, you have to look at the uh, history of exchange-traded products as a, as a vehicle for creating uh, tradability in difficult-to-trade or untraded products. It's basically a world that is incredibly murky, bordering on criminal historically. And yep. it's usually been a way of transferring an awful lot of money from investors to people sponsoring schemes. Yeah, but at least they're trying. I mean, they're out there trying to to do something. So this, the Swiss stock exchange is worth watching. The third disruption event was a number of companies who've issued uh, ETFs uh, on on one on the blockchain industry, where they 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 basically produced an ETF that's on the London stock exchange, which uh, represents uh, an algorithmic uh, mix of fifty companies that are involved in the so-called blockchain industry. Uh, that's an interesting development and worth watching. Again, just yeah, I know the blockchain industry is obviously very, very different from the world of ICOs, but so far the last stats I saw were that more than 90% of ICOs failed largely because the vast majority, I think 90% of that 90%, were then subsequently proven to be to be fraudulent. So oh, sure, as, sure. With any, as with any bubble, you know, you, you will always get over-exuberance trumping over rationality. Yes, that's true. But the companies in this ETF are, are pretty standard companies. You know, a lot of uh, Samsung, for instance, and Taiwan uh, Semiconductor yeah. Manufacturing and Square Overstock. They, they're, they're not heavily reliant upon the blockchain world, but they're an exposure to the blockchain world that you can get without having to enter the blockchain world. So it's an interesting disruption and it's on the London Stock Exchange, so that's worth noting. Uh, the f- fourth event I noted in my um my editorial was the issuance of the first, well, as far as I'm aware, the first uh, regulator-approved bond issuance uh, on on a uh, on a blockchain technology, and that's by Bitbond in Germany, and uh, they issued that on what's called a Stellar blockchain, and that's worth reading about. Um, it's a very significant step because I, because I think um, bond issuance via this uh, uh, system can occur and it it can attract investors. So it's just another way to issue bonds, and that's that's of some interest. I don't know that it's going to change the world, but it's it's worth noting. And then the fifth disruption event I talked about was the stablecoin tether. Um, I've written about the stablecoins quite a bit in the past. I do think they're a very big, significant phenomenon in the in the crypto world. And for those who don't know, a stablecoin is a 
a digital token that represents a fiat currency. So it's a like a digital packet of code that, that represents, for instance, the US dollar. And they try to keep that the value of that locked as close as they can to the fiat currency they're trying to represent. So that's what a stable coin is. And there's quite a few of these now out there. And um, there was a little bit of a disruption event where the biggest stable coin, which is called Tether, it sort of suggested it didn't really have all the US dollars to sit behind it, but nobody knows. They make conflicting statements on their website about their, about their reserves, and um, but it's just worth noting again as well. But the, the interesting thing about stablecoin is the volume traded daily on stablecoin is, um, is rapidly approaching and if not exceeding that of the volume traded on Bitcoin. So the reign of Bitcoin as the premier dominant uh, so-called cryptocurrency is under threat from Tether and from all the other stable coins, because if you add all the stable coins together, then their volume already exceeds Bitcoin. So, didn't you, um, for some reason, you know, everything to do with the crypto world or the blockchain world seems to have ninety percent attached to it, and generally followed by the word fraud as well. But wasn't it you that sent me the article that showed it did two things. One, it did an analysis of trading spreads in Bitcoin exchanges around the world. And secondly, it inferred from the nature of transactions that 90% of Bitcoin trading that takes place every day is non-genuine trading. It's, you know, pocket-to-pocket trading. Correct. I, I, I actually did. I put that article. There was that was last week, I think, or the week before, and there was quite a few articles on the internet about that. There's there's nothing to stop online exchanges in the crypto world from inventing their transactions. There's nothing to stop them. They're largely unregulated. If they want to publish that they have traded five hundred million dollars of Bitcoin in the last twenty four hours, there's nobody stopping them from doing that. They can literally make up the volume numbers. I mean. Uh, there's no regulator looking over their shoulder. And how can anyone prove or disprove what the volume was or what what it wasn't? And and that article that you're referring to was an effort to quantify, you know, how many trades are potentially uh, non-genuine. And we just don't know. I mean, I think there's an um, awful lot of subterfuge in the whole crypto world. I think there are criminals involved in the world and have been for some time. There's been quite a lot of crime. So if you put one and one together, if there have been a lot of crimes and a lot of criminals involved, then why wouldn't they have traded volumes that are not uh, not genuine? It, it sort of makes sense. So that article that you're referring to uh, really was quite shocking to anybody who follows it, uh, who thought that it was genuine volume. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's questionable volume, Paul. We just don't know. We just don't know. And there's no way of telling. Nobody's auditing the statements that are made by all these exchanges, you know, and they make outrageous statements. I mean, they say things like, uh, you know, we've been open for one week and we've had $100 million of turnover. Well, you know, um, <laughs> who knows? You know, um, no, exactly. no, nobody's auditing it. Nobody's checking. No one's regulating. It is the wild, wild west. And that has to change. It has to change. And it is changing already because the, the SEC in America and the FBI are chasing down now the, some of the ICO issuance, the initial coin offerings, and demanding that the money be given back to investors. The policemen have arrived to a certain extent. So the, it's got to clean its act up. The crypto world has to clean its own act up. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So just to try and recap everything we've been talking about then, Jerry, the, yep. Um, yep. the future is compromised in the, uh, in the technological, in the crypto, and the blockchain, and the payments 
world, but that might be getting better because the policemen are finally arriving rather late at the scenes of the crimes. And in terms of central banks, policymakers, what they've done over the past few years is probably so egregious. Um, It it should be a crime, but it almost certainly isn't. But we're, we're hopeful that they might finally have to try and modify their behavior because because of the amount of pressure that's being put on them to do so. Correct. That's true. And also, I think, just to recap on what's the future we're heading into, I think we're just heading into a future of persistent low inflation, low growth, low interest rates. That's not going to change. I can't see anything that will change it, even if, uh, you know, some crazy thing did happen out of the, uh, that appeared out of left field uh, that revolutionized the world of payments or, or uh, whatever. I just think we're stuck with this uh, outlook. When you, you've got that outlook, we're not going to see huge booming economies anymore with inflationary problems and with, with uh, interest rates bearing any great significance. We're, what we're going to see in the world now, and to perhaps to get wrapped right up to the summary, is the world, I think, that's going to be dominated more and more by China and all of the Belt and Road nations. Uh, India, China, Russia, all the, all the, the so-called stand nations, uh, the whole Eurasian landmass is transforming. And uh, I think that's the big, big lesson for us to to watch and, and learn from. And it's already in, it's arrived. It's arrived this week in Europe. So we, should we be paying a lot more um, heed to what goes on at Shanghai Cooperation Organization meetings rather than ECB and Fed? I do. I agree totally. I would pay a lot more attention to what's happening at Shanghai Cooperation Organisation meetings. Yes, I think that's a fair summary. Uh, I don't know that the central banks in the West, the advanced Western world, uh, have got, got much they can do now. I think they're sitting on the sidelines largely. So I think the SCO is in the box seat and the Chinese, of course, are the major player there. But but India is um, uh, is the other one. Uh, it's, it's growing very rapidly. Uh, countries like Indonesia are growing very rapidly. Um, they've got all the demographics on their side. Um, they've got, you know, economies that can grow. They've got credit markets that can expand. Uh, Russia is be, is doing very well. Its economy is very strong and growing stronger by the day. So, you know, even with all the US sanctions on Russia, it doesn't seem to make much difference. And then you've got just last week, I noted in my last editorial, I mentioned about the Iranian president's visit to Iraq. Of course, the mainstream media tend not to report these things because I've got to say they are largely, they're largely propaganda outlets these days, the mainstream Western media. But but the Rouhani went to Iraq and was welcomed as a great saviour and they welcomed him with open arms last week into Iraq. Uh, and the reason being because Iran and Iraq want to mend all of their past problems and um, help each other out. And uh, that became very evident last week when Rouhani visited Iraq. So I think that's a, a sign of uh, hope as well in the Middle East. So that's something else worth noting. I think the Iran-Iraq cooperation that's going on. So there's there's, there's lots of lots of good things happening, but it's uh, it's all slow and long term. Well, absolutely. And, you know, just picking up on your last point, the, the final thing I'd say, we, we've just had a kind of a general election here in Thailand, a very Thai kind of a general election. Uh, yes. And if you want propaganda through paid mouthpieces, then go and read everything the Western media says about it because it's pretty much unrecognisable from... Oh, really? Absolutely. It's nonsense. I, I used to assume that the BBC were in the pay of certain people here in Thailand, but it turns out there are other Western news organisations that are equally as bad and 
and what it shows to me is trying to get a realistic narrative on anything that's happening in the world is extremely difficult. I, you know, I see how badly BBC, Financial Times, German newspapers, I see how badly they report events here in Thailand in, in, a, in a very skewed, very, as I said, almost acting as paid mouthpiece for propaganda type of way. And the thing that's slowly dawning on me is if that's how they report Thailand, how much faith should I have in how much they report the home markets or Australia or anywhere else in the world, frankly? Um, yeah. I, I, I agree. I think the, the Western media has lost its way very, very much. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you saw last night, I think it was the boss of CNN said that, then, that uh, his journalists are not investigators. Yeah, <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. If a journalist is not an investigator, then what is he? He's just right, a exactly. mouthpiece. And that's how it's becoming, yeah. I mean, it really is sad because, you know, you and I are both of an age where we can remember that the Western media, I think, was, uh, you know, a bastion of free speech and free Absolutely. thought and, and debate. And uh, But those days have gone. It's I think it's very sad. I think the, the media needs to examine itself uh, rigorously and, and make a comeback because at the moment they've lost a lot lot of credibility um, I totally agree I mean uh, you know obviously I spend a lot of time with specialist organizations like uh, Bloomberg and CNBC who I think yep. because of the nature of what they do have to have an objectivity about that but other than that if I want global news then uh, probably you have to go to places like Al Jazeera or RT because at least you know what their biases are they're they're, they're not hidden on issues where um, they can afford to be objective they actually go around covering stories that Western media just ignore completely. So um, I think it's either that or wait for the next Boom podcast. The next Boom podcast, that's right. Well, I'll get, I'll just on to finish on that point, I think the, uh, the big problem the Western media has is censorship by exclusion. It just doesn't report lots of things. And that's the real sadness is um, uh, if, if they just are selecting what they want us to see and they leave out a lot of important news then they're not performing their role as a media outlet so that is that's i think the saddest thing that's that's happened in the last 10 years or so and it's getting worse it's just you know i i, I call it censorship by exclusion or by you know what's the word exception they just don't they just don't uh, present news that is happening around the world and they focus on silly things like the weather and the sport and the uh, the dog that fell off the boat and uh, you know it's really getting silly but i don't know how we fix it paul i just don't know how we fix that we keep doing our brave new economic world as often as we can jerry i think that's what we'll have to do we're now the top leading uh, news outlet in the world and uh, you've just got to listen to your Boom and MBMG podcast too. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks Thank for chatting you. again, Paul. We'll sign off now and uh, look forward to our next chat. Absolutely. Catch up soon. All the best. Thanks, Paul. Bye now. Bye. Well, I think that pretty much covers everything. If you'd like to receive the next podcast automatically, then subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Also, we'd love to hear your feedback and any suggestions for topics for future podcasts. If you'd like to contact us, please leave a message in the comments box on your podcast provider. Thanks for listening, and until next time, bye.